You're Going to Die, the podcast is brought to you by YG2D, a 501c3 nonprofit bringing diverse communities creatively into the conversation of death and dying, inspiring life by unabashedly sourcing our shared mortality. To find out more, visit www.yg2d.com. What an honor it is in this life to cry with other people who are readily willing to generously offer their own tears to you. We need more of that medicine and thanks to Rachel Cargill in this episode for the tears she shed with me. my goodness, what am I up to over here? Hey, everybody. Welcome to You're Going to Die, the podcast. I am eating some kind of healthier version of Cheetos. They're not Cheetos. (laughs) I just am taking many bites of those just before I got on this mic to talk to you. And my kitchen sink is absolutely busted. Like It was not draining. And then the plumber came and stuck one of those snakes down there and they just got dirt. They pulled dirt out. The pipe is like broken. There's so much going on in the world right now and so much to do in the context of what's happening globally just to live and survive and work and play. I don't know what's going on with you. I feel insane. And I'm relieved, kind of, because I just I have this moment today of just feeling like totally out of control, and I'm I'm running everywhere, this, that, and the other direction, trying to fix things, and that's very fun to admit to you, because, gosh, how often do I say, in the spaces we facilitate and what we do with you're going to die, what does it mean to like just be and not try to fix people and fix things? But it's there, it's there, and so then today. <laughs> So simply confronted by a broken drain, fully broken drain. There's nothing you can do, but there is. There is something I can do. I can go out here and record this introduction to this special episode and this special conversation with Rachel Cargill, and that's what I'm doing. I'm just doing the next thing, and sometimes that's it. You just do the next thing hopefully something that's meaningful and has some kind of medicine embedded in it. And that's what this podcast is for me. And yes, we skipped a week, if you hadn't noticed. And I'm maybe going to stop saying so. Like, I think it's healthy for us to take some break and be spacious. And I so love my podcasts, how upset I am when there is not an episode ready in the queue every day of the week I expect it to be. And so I do apologize if you were counting on this soothing salve. Is that right? Is that a word? For your ears and your spirit and being in the world and your heart. Uh, That's what I hope the podcast is offering, actually. And I'm sorry we missed a week, but we're back, and we're back with a really special episode and a really special guest. Rachel Elizabeth Cargill is an activist, entrepreneur, and philanthropic innovator. She is founder of the Loveland Group, a family of companies, including Elizabeth's Bookshop and Writing Center, a literary space that celebrates marginalized voices and the great unlearn, a community learning space that centers the teaching of BIPOC thinkers. 
In 2018, she founded the Loveland Foundation, offering free access to mental health care for black women and girls. Cargill is a regular contributor to Cultured Magazine, Atmos, and The Cut, and her work has been featured in Time Magazine, The Washington Post, and The New Yorker. And her debut memoir, A Renaissance of Our Own, came out last year in May of 2023, and the paperback will be available this March 2024. I hope you enjoy this episode, like something you can get to with a little snack, maybe like some kind of healthy Cheeto or a good drink of water or a, a, a hammock to lay in or uh, some kind of quiet place to be with this conversation that meant so much for me to have on You're Going to Die, the podcast with Rachel Cargill. Well, I think the first thing that is true is that I feel like my work in the world is really to live out loud, to live out loud, to think out loud, to heal out loud, to learn out loud. I feel like I've been given the tools, the platform, and um, all of the situations to show up to the world as best I can, and for me, best is most curious, most open, most ready to be critical about, you know, to really show up as my best self and to use the tool and talent, I perhaps would say, of writing that I have to convey it and to be in conversation with those who read my work and who come across it. So what that means is that grief is inevitably a part of my work because it's something I'm experiencing. And if my work is to experience out loud, then I, I have to talk about grief. Another thing that speaks to my relationship with grief and how it intersects with my work is, you know, my um, all of our mothers, perhaps, but I'll speak to mine. Mm-hmm. never really know what we do for work, <laughs> yeah. especially for creatives. Like they really def- never have a real concept of yeah. what we're doing in the world. Like imagine they might have talking one, to yeah, someone else about it. What's, what's Rachel it. do? Yeah. Right. I, yeah. And, and like they, they like hone on one activity you've done before and they make that the thing. And so, you know, my mom didn't really have, a concept of the work that I did in the world. But since her passing, it feels like she is in my work. She is my work. This grief is my work. And I have found so much beauty and joy in that, in me and my mother being able to be in relationship with my work through my work of grief um, in a way that could have never happened, uh, that could, in a way that could have never happened while she was alive, because there were so many barriers to, to intimacy in many ways, perhaps, that we all might have with any loved one. You know, like my mom was very Christian and I'm queer and, you know, my mom had her feelings about what a stable job looked like. My mother also had a disability. And so that that. Um, caused a lack in a bit of physical, you know, in how we relate physically. And mm-hmm. since her passing and my a lot of my writing being rooted in this experience of grief, in this journey, practice of grief, um, has felt very heartening that finally my mom knows and is in my work in a way that yeah, she couldn't yeah. have been. And that's a new lens that I'm moving with these days in my work. 
as I mentioned, you know, the living out loud, the learning out loud, the healing out loud, that also means that I have to do some living and some learning and some healing. And so um, that's really rooted in grief right now. Things I am finding out about my mother, things I'm finding out about my sister, things I just now I'm having the questions and I'm grieving, not being able to ask them. You know, there's a lot of my day to day is my grief practice right now with how fresh it is. And Mm -hmm. um, I imagine and hope to anticipate that this will be a lifelong practice, a lifelong journey, and there'll be more things, ways to evolve in it. But yes, it does take up a lot of space in my work, but also it is my work because Mm -hmm. it is the thing that I'm experiencing right now. And that's what I am called to bring to the world in the form of my my writing and curation and conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I relate to that so much. I feel like it took years to do something it sounds like you're doing already, which is probably even when I've absorbed some of your content, you know, I think that you put out before your mom died this work around ancestry and what does it mean to integrate and be in relationship with lineage also mean just like simply like still be in relationship with our dad. I just don't think I knew that option from my spiritual path or whatever context I was in when my mom died. And I feel like it took years. And in a way, the chance where I really, where I really got the chance to do it uh, was especially when I started doing you're going to die and and then even more so when i started doing the work with cancer patients my mother died from cancer and i i think in a way you just described a version of like i've said before my mom absolutely if someone like me would have walked into a hospital room when my mom was in the hospital getting treated for cancer she would have been like get the hell out i i don't i don't want to i don't want i don't want to know i don't want to talk about it i'm just here to get the medicine and have this thing fixed you know um which i respect and now she's just in it you know like every i did a workshop this morning you know, I have a workshop every day now with these cancer patients and her presence is just there, you know, like to, to be in communion with her yeah. in this work matters so much. Yeah. Thank you, Mama. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Would you mind telling me your mom's name? Mm-hmm. Uh, Gwendolyn Johnson. I, I wonder similarly, I was thinking about this with my mom, so much of the work I do, especially around grief and, um, it, it feels connected to growing up with her and being raised by her. And sometimes I think even when she got diagnosed with cancer, when I was 13, you know, those 13 years of her going through chemo and losing her hair and, and, and being sick and bouncing back and remission and recurrence and all that it's almost like more than her death, that stuff informs Mm -hmm, how mm -hmm, I'm in my work. mm -hmm, And I mm -hmm. wonder, you know, you've, you, you've shared your mom's had had polio and, and you talked already a little bit about her health, uh, because of that, um, for your mom 
you know, I'd love to hear if you relate to that or, or if there's a way, because mm. part of what it is, is like, obviously we talk about your mother and your grandmother and your sister. Like, I want to make room for them here. Mm -hmm. These losses that are so recent and, and close together. And like, I know that maybe there's other versions of how you've been with grief, um, including mm -hmm. your dad's death when you were 11. And so mm -hmm. I'm kind of wanting to go all the way back to some of those beginnings to know how you were in relationship to this already, you know, before mm -hmm. your mom and your sister. Mm -hmm. Grandma died. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting in many ways. And I'd, I'd love to speak to just a few of them. The first is, well, I should say the first thing that came to mind when you were mentioning that is that I often say that I haven't even gotten to the point of grieving my mom's death yet because I'm still getting over how terrible the process was. Like, I don't even think that I, my brain has gotten to the fact that she's passed away yet. I'm still in absolute mm -hmm. excruciating shock from the eight weeks of her passing mm -hmm. and being, I don't know if I want to say honest about it, but, but speaking that truth really opened me up to what other things might I be processing in, in this moment leading up to the ultimate ongoing processing of my mother passing away. And it has given me new insight to myself. You know, grief often opens the door to other griefs, other griefs that haven't gotten a chance. They're like, oh, there's a door open. Let us sneak out and get our chance to be felt. Yeah, right, right. And so I feel like many other griefs have snuck out this, have snuck out this open door of mm -hmm. my mother my mother's passing, my grandma's passing, my sister's passing. And so this grief so far has been incredibly reflective because it's bringing up things that I hadn't thought about or I didn't recognize this grief. As you said, my mother, I, I was born to a disabled mother. She had polio since she was five. She was on crutches my whole life. Um, and towards the end of her life, she... <clears throat> Uh, was in a wheelchair, but I just now am really considering how hard that was for me. It, my brain is just now letting me consider that like you actually had a bit of struggle as a child and you, you held some weight that shouldn't necessarily have been on a child. You know, I think so much about when the school would announce a concert's happening and I, uh, you know, the band concert and I'd be like, in my head, I'm like, well, my mom, will there be rafters? Or will mm, my mom sit? Will it be snowing outside? Will she be able, like, all, like, I held a lot of weight around how to care for myself as someone who didn't have a parent with full ability, with full physical abilities. And then also how to care for her. I remember being, you know, six, seven years old, walking behind her, heading to the car from our house, hoping she didn't fall on the way to the parking lot. And while, I didn't think much of it because it just was the normalcy of my life. I'm now recognizing how much weight that had on me, especially looking at, you know, some of the things that I call like the joy of grief, which, in, which includes for me, 
Oh, the first snowstorm in Ohio after she passed away oh, was so gosh, blissful for me because I was like, wow, I do not have to worry about my mom right now. That's like, right. yes, I could just sit here, let the ice come, let the snow come. There's no one I have to worry about except for myself. And that changed my lens of the world. That gave me some freedom and some space mm. to be feeling other things, thinking other things and the tension I had around my mother's well-being, which is something I held in me my entire life because I was born to a mother with a disability. Um, So yeah, so all of that, you know, colors my experience of this grief. And I think it's something particularly that people who had a sick parent, whether it was for the few weeks before they passed or their entire lives like me, there is an element of relief that we get to have knowing that they are not in this lifetime suffering or even having the anticipated possibility of suffering because of, you know, whatever it was that, um, made them not well. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, I deeply relate to that. And I, and I'd wrote, I'd written that down cause it, you've, you've shared about that you know, on online, the, the complexity of, of grief having, um, the both and I think is what you, mm-hmm. you framed it as that you could have this deep sadness and relief. My mom mm-hmm. was single mom, but alone living in an apartment in my hometown, uh, driving home that week that she died, just feeling the like need that she has for me to like get there to help and having lived with her for a year up until that point, you know, and she got better and that's why I went down to LA. Um, but then she got really sick really quick and feeling during those times, immediate relief. And, and I I don't know if the bereavement groups support helped me know that it's healthy and that it's okay, but I don't ever remember feeling guilty about that. You know, it's feeling Mm -hmm. guilty Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. the relief around her just not having to do it anymore too, you know, for her relief for her, not, not just me, you know, that's so significant. I, I think that one of a part of my own grief practice for my mother mostly, maybe in ways for my sister too, is just like fantasizing about that relief, like really allowing it to to wash over me. Like I can take this with the hard things too. Like I, I am worthy of whatever good feelings could come out of this. And I speak to this, you know, there's a shadow side to everything. Um, there's a shadow side to every, even the good things that we experience. There's a shadow side. And I think we can also take that consideration that there there is some sun in the hard things too in in the hard things and I think that this way you know my mother could never walk and I just imagine her doing cartwheels wherever she is right now I imagine her you know my mom loved Marvin Gaye and I just imagine her like being able to spin around and dance with him I I imagine the sports she would play, especially, you know, I'm 35 and I'm coming into such consciousness around the way that my childhood affected me. I'm coming into a lot of consciousness around who my mother was as a woman outside of just my mother. And, you know, I think of, you know, my mom, she, she could never stand on her own, but she would sit and do yoga on the floor. And I, and my, she did that a lot during my life. And I just took it as like, 
something my mom does. But now I, I like to fantasize about like, if she could have walked, you know, like she, she might've been like an artist running around New York city, going to yoga classes and going to the art museum and like imagining so many other things without the guilt of having to witness her suffering right now. And I really relish in the opportunity to, to fantasize on the other side mm. of death because it takes away all of that static that might've been there. You know, <laughs> sometimes I, in the conversation in my head with my mother, you know, I'm like, Ooh, I want to tell you about who I'm dating because you don't have to worry about me and whether I'll go to heaven or hell or not. And yeah, it's a girl, you're in yeah, wherever you, you, you are. So just yeah, listen. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> like, totally. no... You don't got to carry the stuff you <laughs> yeah, were carrying you're before. Like, yes. Yeah, totally. Yes, like all of those things. And oh, so I'm yeah. really delighted by the lack of barriers that death offers to mm-hmm. people who are in relationship. And humanity, life causes us to build up all of these constructs that often can be barriers between ourselves and other people and death is just such like a exhilarating almost erasure of a lot of those constraints that made us not work and it's nice to work in this way um even in the midst of an excruciating loss Mm, i love that so much i can't help but connect it and by the way, Rachel, you could be like, dude, stop bringing up everything that's hard. Cause I, I have this list. I was like, and you could, and we can cut any of this out, but I feel like most of it's public already, but just, you know, like your dad, when you were 11, some, uh, I think you referenced some sibling addiction in your life too, you know, growing up and, and then, and then I'm returning to what you shared here now, which is the, the eight weeks, you know, what it was to sit with your mom as she was dying and how hard that was. I, I feel relief in what you just shared from that too. You know, part of what I feel like I spent a lot of those first few years after my mom died, and I felt like it was that long, was reckoning with those last, that last week of her life. You know, that like reckoning with what it was like being with her when she, you know, I remember once taking her to chemo and driving her home to the apartment and she got out of the car from the pasture side really quickly and I wasn't there and she fell over and mm-hmm. um feeling what it felt like when we tried to my sister and I were trying to get her into her upstairs apartment and she couldn't literally couldn't walk uh mm-hmm. and those years before I could get anywhere close to just being in a relationship. And even some of this, I'm like, Oh my gosh, like, I know I've done what you're describing a bit. I have not fantasized enough. Like this is inspiring lots of that. But before I got to any kind of new relationship with my mom and freed myself from that heartbreak of that time, it's like, I didn't want to keep her there. You know, it felt like I really wanted to free her from that, those memories of especially the last week of her life. And it feels like what you're describing is is a, a version of being able to do that. Do, do you connect that practice of fantasizing about where your mom is now or how your mom is now to the last eight weeks? Does it feel like medicine or a solve for that, how hard that was? Not I hear what you're saying. I don't think that's how it lands for me. I think that um, that's just like a coping mechanism or a tool that I'm using in my grief or a exercise I can do to allow my grief to have motion and not just sit. Um, Mm. But, you know, (laughs) those 
hard memories of when they were perhaps hurt or hurting. I don't think I've even gotten there yet. <laughs> I think, I think that, you know, having a disabled mother, I had a lifetime of worrying about when she might fall or how she might feel after being hurt. And so I probably, I'm assuming, have a lifetime of instances that will come to me mm. that I'll have to reckon with of like, damn, I wish I was there or damn, I'm so bad she was oh, hurt. Yeah, sure, Rachel. You know, I know you know that. So... I, I want to say, yeah, you know, I have like a little window in and I have some of that. Yes, I, do, yes, I do feel yes. the relating and just to imagine, yeah, like you said, my mom wasn't disabled, you know, and, yes. and feeling the acute nature of her like body in the world. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I can remember being maybe 11. I don't think my father had passed away yet. Maybe he had, but I remember being at a summer camp. My mom would send me to summer camp if I wanted to most summers. And I would get homesick a lot. So I would definitely try to manipulate the camp counselor with things about why I needed to be going home or why I needed to be calling my mom. And what's funny now I know my mom actually, she told me later that she would drive. The camp wasn't far from my house, maybe 30 minutes. My mom would drive to the camp every day and sit in the parking lot and watch me play, <laughs> which I totally believe her because I would come back and she would be like, remember this happened and this happened. I'm like, oh my gosh, you were there. Um, but also as a disabled woman, she wasn't working. So these are, you know, this is the thing she would spend her time doing. And I absolutely mm. believe she would just park and watch me. But mm. I remember being at camp and me telling the camp counselor, like, um, I have to call my mom and they'd be like, no, it's not time to call parents, you know, just come lay down. And I, and I remember saying like, do you even know that my mom has polio and she could fall at any point in time? <laughs> like, say that? No, yes, 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 yes absolutely. Yeah. So, so it was both my, you know, as any kid would be wrangling an adult to do what they want them to do. It was also a very real part of how I navigated the world. It was a very, you know, I might've been, using it lightly as a way to get the treat of calling my mother. But the fact that it was even in my mind to say, your mom has a disability, she could fall and this could be a tactic you could use makes me feels heavy for my 11 year old self, even though I was being a little brat, like the fact that I had that material and that tool is yeah. so it, 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 it sits on me now as an adult like I couldn't feel it as a child because it's all I knew but I feel like a lot of my grief is also grieving for a younger version of myself mm -hmm. who was holding so much yeah 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 to the chance now like you said earlier the chance what's happening now with the loss of your mom you know especially but your grandma and your sister is this like thread all the way back I mean I feel like you said in in another in something else I, I read or listened to of yours online that like your mom couldn't even help you grieve your dad you know at 11 mm -hmm. like she wasn't able to do that and so I believe this so wholeheartedly you said it these things open up uh, unfinished business, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, I even think sometimes mm -hmm. with the things I've experienced, like something as significant as my mom's death, that like there's some kind of past life stuff I'm get, having access to, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I don't know if you relate to that, but 
Yeah, um, I do. I do relate to that very, very, very much. And it, you know, I did a mushroom trip recently and it was dynamic. And one of the themes of it was this lifetime and what it means for me and who I am in it. And earlier in our conversation, I mentioned that I feel like my work is to live out loud, grieve, you know, heal out loud, move out loud. And what I came to realize in that mushroom trip was, you know, like some of the work that I have to do could only be done once my mother is gone because these are the lessons I need to learn. And when you corrected yourself from chance to, you know, just the thing that's going on, I, as someone who at 11 did not have the chance to grieve because I did not have the tools or I did not have the environment to do it. I take the active practice of grieving as like a luxury, as like a, a, a chance, an opportunity. Like we know how it is to, be just trying to pay our rent, to be trying to care for those who we are caregivers to, to figure out how to situate ourselves in the world. Most people don't have the chance to sit and grieve. Most people do not have the chance to sit and have the opportunity to be thoughtful and critical and open and soft in the face of grief. It is truly an opportunity and a luxury to be able to be in relationship with grief and not have to hold it in us until we get to a point where we can be soft enough or open enough or conscious enough or even self-aware enough to really process it. And so I think that grief work is a part of this lifetime for me, something that I am supposed to be approaching and in, in relationship within this lifetime. And I thank my mom for being a part of that, um, a part of that mission or purpose or intention or lineage process. Um, because I do still feel like we're working, we're still working together. Hey, considering that you might also feel uh, insane today, considering everything going on in the world globally and maybe personally for you, I don't know. Is it in bad form just to not ask you to do anything right now? I feel like there's like sponsors and and boy, do we need them. And I feel like there's there's ratings and reviews. Gosh, don't we need those too? But also, is there some kind of revolution possible with podcasting where you could just have a host say, oh, I don't know, man. I don't want to expect anything anymore of the world, <laughs> of you that maybe right now it's just a chance to thank you for listening to you're going to die the podcast we could share a reciprocal moment our little reciprocal relationship you dear listener and me dear host can i call myself your dear host what what's there in in this exchange some kind of easy something some kind of enoughness that's what i want i'm tired i'm tired and I do not have enough answers 
for what's needed right now. But I am imagining you and feeling grateful that all I need to do right now is just be here and speak into your ear. And that's a gift for me. So thank you. It absolutely is. I cannot say it enough right now. I'm feeling that really sincerely. And I hope this podcast, my presence here, these conversations offer you a little of what you need right now too. Some kind of gifts. Thanks so much for listening to You're Going to Die, the podcast. Now, back to the conversation with Rachel Cargill. Nothing had happened in my book. My mother passed away a few months before my book was released. And so there wasn't that material there. I'm grateful for what I was able to process through that book Mm. to help me, to give me some positionality in the midst of my mother's death. But um, my mom passed away on November 4th, 2022, after eight weeks of rapid decline after several years of having breast cancer. Her second bout of breast cancer, her first was when I was in high school. And uh, she was in the hospital for a while. And it was one of those situations where she went to the hospital once and never came home. And I was living, where was I at at the time? I was in New York City and I had come home for that time. And I also had an apartment in Ohio, which was wonderful to be able to have a tiny little bit of comfort in the midst of it. Um, But yeah, she passed that November. Um, And then in August of 2023, so just a few months later, my grandmother, her mother, who was 99, um, who had just celebrated her 99th birthday, she passed away. just from age, she had dementia as well, but there was nothing really, you know, my grandma loved to tell people, I don't even have a headache. I'm perfectly fine. And so she, (laughs) yes. So it really, she really was fine and she just passed away. So, you know, my, my grief around my grandma is so different than my grief around my mother or even my sister and my oldest sister, her name was Michelle. She, um, was 12 years older than me and she passed away in September. So about a month after grandma passed away, my older sister, my oldest sister passed away. Um, so that was between November of 2022 and, um, November of 2023, I had lost my mother, my grandmother and my Mm. older sister. And, um, yeah, it was, they were all three very different experiences of grief, all different than my father passing away. He passed away when I was 11 of kidney failure. And my dad had been sick for a long time. So I knew what sickness looked like. And I knew what hospitals looked like. I used to, like when my dad was in the nursing home while he was sick, I would like read to the old women and I would go paint nails when I would come in. It would be what I would just do after school. Like I would go to school, go to soccer practice and go to the nursing home to visit my dad. Yeah. Yeah, And it was just like 
normal to me. I remember sitting with him while he was getting dialysis. Like my mom would drop me off to his dialysis unit and I would just mm-hmm. sit with him. That was our time to kind of spend time together often. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I never really got to grieve it cause it was just, there just is no room, <laughs> no mm-hmm. room and no tools to do so. And so mm-hmm. all of this new grief in the last year has really opened the door to my grief as a whole. And it's, it's taken up a lot of space in my world and in my heart and in my head. And, um, yeah, I'm still very much still in the thick of it. Yeah. Thanks for sharing all that. Um, well, yeah, a friend of mine who knows I, one of my best friends, I met them when I was at San Francisco State, like when I started doing You're Going to Die, you know, those first events. Recently, we were together during the holidays and we got into an argument because, you know, I would describe to her like being, well, we were specifically what happened is we were at a bar and someone came over and said, you know, they were doing, uh, tests, you know, where you can test, uh, for fentanyl and things, you know, they're giving them out as new year's is coming up and they work for a nonprofit. They started it. And I got the sense, I I was just wondering like, what's behind the story of, of them starting this nonprofit. And my friend just kind of called me out and, and said, connected it to other conversations we've had, especially was like the regularity with which I get into a taxi cab. And somehow by the end of the taxi cab, the driver's like crying and shared like all their deepest losses with me. And, and that I'm someone in the world who maybe like, I don't know, am empathic and or whatever. But also I realized from growing up that I'm out here trying to like get get information about why someone's sad or someone's depressed or what's wrong. You know, that's my shadow. That's my like, like Mm -hmm. darkness. It's like, that's something that would lead to this work that would have that behind it. A mom Mm -hmm. who's not talking about anger and depression, a dad who's like absence, mostly physically, literally. And when he's around, he's mostly anger, angry. And so realizing like, Oh, part of what I do is, is trying to get, you to connect with me by sharing something that's like intimate. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wanting to acknowledge that with you here that, you know, she was like, that can be an act of violence. You know, you're like getting people to open up and then you're bouncing bouncing on them in the car and you got them to share all. And then you're like, see ya, you know? Yes, that's very true. I I recently dated someone like you. (laughs) I remember telling her, I remember telling, you know, and it's so funny because it's one of those things that it probably is the very thing that attracted me of being Mm. like, wow, you really can pull that out of people. But then at some point, you know, it can seem more about your interest than someone else's uh, need or desire to share. So I'm grateful that your friend could be a mirror for you because I think it's that's kind of like the poison in the wounds, you know, the shadow and the sun. So thank you for giving the space for that consideration. Mm, And and just wanting to highlight it here with me pursuing that with you that I I really do mean to hold it tenderly and ask it tenderly and, and, and care more about what it is for you than it is like mm-hmm. me getting getting to the meat of the matter or mm-hmm. something, you know? So yeah, um, yeah. It, was, <laughs> it was a hard conversation, but it is that like reaching a point where what's sustainable beyond here is like me not operating that way. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like yeah. like something about it not not working. But anyway, I'm 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 thank you for sharing some of that with me though. And 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 especially mm-hmm. for the background of those losses, you know. Um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you so for recent. asking it. It mm-hmm. opened a new question for me. Mm. Um, I, I do want to know, you know, it feels to me like I, I can't help but think with your sister and your grandma too, 
what it's like sometimes when loss happens, like the death of your mother, that like staying with your grandma, at least knowing that she essentially experienced one of the greatest losses, uh, I think we might Mm -hmm. suffer, which is losing a, a, a child. And just thinking about her also knowing she was 99, like you said, like it, she was old, you know, yeah. um, but also wondering about that heartbreak. And I don't know what that connection was or if there's anything to speak to there. Just kind of curious. You know, grandma had dementia, so I don't think she knew. She she knew, you know, at least the time, the first time she heard it. Yeah. But, you know, a few weeks before my, maybe like a week before my mom passed, my grandma had come to the hospice and it was so, you know, my mom had been calling for her mother in, in the delirium of her dying and the decline when she didn't have much cognitive presence. One of the most basic things had been calling for her mother and her brothers. And so that ended up being a space that we spent a lot of time in convincing her that they were on their way, reminding her that they had come, you know, things like that. And then there's the whole dynamic of grandma coming in with her own dementia. She still had enough. She still would be present when she was present, but then there was a complete shift when she would forget. And it, it was, I also wondered that. I also wondered what is grandma experiencing? Because maybe my my grandmother had already lost two of her children at that point. My aunt Karen passed away when I was much younger. Oh, wow. um, so that's a child, my, my grandma's youngest child. Mm. So that was, and that was when my grandma was probably in her seventies. So she had had that particular experience. Mm-hmm. And then my uncle Robert, my mom's little brother, he had passed away maybe three years ago. So that was another child that my grandmother had lost. And she was conscious that she was, she was, she was just getting Alzheimer's at that time before it transitioned into dementia. So I remember I wasn't involved. Her children were mostly the ones tending to her. You know, the grandchildren weren't a hundred percent in it, but I remember feeling anxiety like, wow, mom, how are we going to explain this to grandma? Like how, how are we going to explain to her that uncle Robert has passed away when she probably won't remember? Mm. Um, So then my mom's, my mom's passing was interesting because grandma did come to the hospital. She, she physically saw mom there. She saw her in decline. My grandma's smart. So I'm sure in her consciousness, she knew like she probably assumed, or there was probably even in the lack yeah. of consciousness, some connection yeah, that they had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember when my grandma came, she like was feeding her. She was treating her very much like a child in a way that I had never witnessed. Like, I had never seen my mom laying on her and my grandma feeding her and doing things a bit mother, I mean, very mother child, like, but not at the age that they were obviously. Mm -hmm. So that was very special and interesting Mm -hmm. to me to see. And then grandma was at mom's funeral. She was sitting right at the front. And so she saw her body there. And so I'm assuming, and she didn't react to it outside of, a way that would tell you that her child had passed. Mm -hmm. So it was so interesting. And then, you know, grandma was like hot stuff in the community, like in the church community in particular. And so 
it was really special for everyone to be there for mom's funeral, but see grandma and be like, it was really another opportunity for everyone to maybe that my mom's funeral might've been the last time many people saw grandma before her own, before grandma's own funeral. Mm. And so I am grateful that we all were able, we all got a picture. (laughs) I have to tell this funny story just because it's on my mind. Do it. It was, it was at my mom, the repast of my mother's funeral. My grandma's there. All of her, my, my grandma had six children. So that's like a bajillion grandchildren. And so we're all there standing behind my grandma to take this picture. And it really is the last group picture we got as a family before my mom passed. And they go to take the picture and my grandma looks behind her and she goes, whose family is this? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and we're like, oh, we literally all came from you. Like every single one of us. Yeah, your entire, you. yeah, your entire family. Your whole DNA is here. Yeah. And it was just so like her, like, the way her dementia would come in and out. But it was the, it was the hilarious moment. We're all sitting there as a family. She looks around like we were the most disappointing group of people she had ever yeah, in yeah, her yeah. life like who are these people and why are they associating themselves with me so it was so we so all that to say like we still really did have grandma in that moment mm. like she was even with all of the totally. ways there wasn't full consciousness so and it's you know gosh I know your listeners are going to be so annoyed because at this point I'm annoyed with me for finding all of the little good parts of grief. No way. No, <laughs> no, I don't think so. I mean, I, I appreciate you saying that. It's like, I, I don't know that our listeners, like, all I want to do is get on and have just the dark, most hard, hurtful things confirmed. It's like, I they want to hear this stuff. <laughs> I also try so hard not to sound like one of those, like, self-help gurus. Like, but it's okay, you're not we'll all be you're well and we'll be so <laughs> I don't want to be that, but it's really what's coming up for me. Yeah, but anyway, good. But, That's know, what I want. <laughs> my... What can I just say? Can I just say I so appreciate that. Sorry, I so appreciate that, Rachel. And you're what's possible. You know, it's like you're not you. You haven't not been being this way. This is how you are. This is what I was trying mm-hmm. to say earlier. This is what you do. Mm-hmm. You know, Thank it's not you. self help. It's like real and it's honest and it's a possibility. You know, like I really feel that. Like I need it. Yeah, thank you. And I, yeah, I think a lot of my work is possibility work. So thank Mm. you for saying that. So, you know, the funerals became, the funerals so close to each other became some of the last places we could gather. And, you know, after losing such matriarchs, we all know what that feeling is like in a family. Or if you don't know, you can imagine what that fissure does. It actually meant a lot for us to gather so many times in such a short amount of time in the way that we had to because of the deaths, but that really gave us an opportunity and to speak to that. And if there's ever a place that I'm going to cry during this, it's this one, because it is just a heart wound that of a grand proportion, (laughs) you know, it's collateral grief fucks you up. (laughs) It's the stuff you're not expecting. And a few years before my mother got really sick, my nephew, who's 25 now, he was arrested and went to one of those prisons here in Ohio, which is a grief in itself. And she passed before he came home. And she is who raised him. And 
when we talk about the way grief is kind of compartmentalized, we get to this part, then we get to this part. It will be a while before I can really get to that part of him missing her. Yeah. Hmm. And what he must be carrying for the rest of his life. Because of that. But, you know, I did everything I could to get him there to that funeral. And what I ended up being able to do was have him video in live the whole time or for the, for the beginning of it. And they, Mm -hmm. they told us, they said, you have a choice. You can either video in before the service or he could video in during the service. And so I had to make a decision and I decided Mm -hmm. to have a video in before the service because then he could see everyone, everyone. I just set up his laptop and it became an opportunity for, (laughs) you know, he, he hadn't had any visitors. He hadn't had a chance to really, see his family and we hadn't seen him it was my first time seeing him on video Mm. in years and so the deep joy of seeing him that day everyone you know I just set up the laptop in the foyer of the funeral home and I was so excited to show everyone like go see him before you come in to see the body of mom like (laughs) stop by and see him and say hi to him and it was it was just it was just incredible and then Mm. by the time my sister passed away he came home the night before my sister passed away which was his aunt and to bring him like I remember he spent the night at my house that night he came home and he's here like the you can't explain the joy of him being home at the funeral of my sister. It was just Mm. like this outrageous Mm. swing of emotions Mm. that I can't acknowledge the joy of it and the heartbreak. Yeah. And it's all, yeah, it's all connected. I mean, that specifically that like feeling what had happened with your grandma and then have him, the joy of getting him to be with there before your sister and then what you create, that, that, what, what I'm feeling to go back to what you said before you dropped in, it's like, you know, Rachel, you're not, you're not saying to everybody right now, like, Hey, Hey, like, here's all the good news. You know, you're like crying right now, <laughs> expressing like deep grief and heartbreak and acknowledging like the beauty amidst all that, you know, mm-hmm. it's like the, the good mm-hmm. things. I just, it just, it matters a lot to me to like, I feel like you don't need me to do this. This, you know, this about yourself, but it matters a lot to say, like to cry enough, to feel enough, to be in the grief enough. You said it earlier already. That's how you're able to get any of the other stuff, you know? Yes. And I think I, I have found right now I'm, I'm 35 years old and I have found that one of the greatest, most diverse tools is self-knowing. Self-knowing, studying myself, understanding myself, trusting myself has been one of the greatest tools for allowing me to navigate the world. People often ask me, particularly in my work, they'll say things like, you know, Rachel, how did you find the courage to do X, Y, Z? How did you um, give yourself the confidence to do one thing or another, whatever the thing is that they find inspirational. For some people, it's me posting a nude photo on social media. For another person, it might be having gotten a divorce from a very good man who I just knew wasn't good for me. For another person, it might be sharing my grief in the way that I do. 
The answer to that every time is I recognize it as something that I need. And as I move through the world, I trust myself that if I fail, I can recover. And if I succeed, I can succeed gracefully. That gives me a lot of space to take risks and to explore possibility because ultimately I know that I will be there for myself. I know that I have the wits, the curiosity, the tools, the even community or ability to build community. Everything that I need, I possess. And that will always be my buoy through any weather that I'm experiencing in this lifetime, the weather of grief, the weather of success, the weather of failure, the weather of relationships, all of that. I have the tools here. I can, I can take time to sharpen them. I can get new tools as I go through life and learn new things. I can let go of some tools that are no longer serving me, but I feel confident that I have with me tools to move through the world. Things that I have seen, things that have proven themselves as things that work, things that I have sat through with my own heart or therapist to say, hey, this actually isn't producing the results that you know I want. Let's change it. So that's the first thing I'll say. When it comes to grief, I have decided to take it on as a practice. I often talk about my grief practice. I decided to go with practice because of two things. One, I see grief as my ongoing opportunity to be in relationship with my mother. And so it's certainly not something I'm trying to eradicate, but it is something I want to be in relationship with. And any relationship takes a bit of shape-shifting, a bit of understanding, of learning, of trying new things, of needing new things to keep it going. And so grief as a practice is my personal showing up to my mother, even on the other side. So that's, that's, that's grief is practice for me. And every day I find new ways to be in practice with my grief. Just the other day I was at the, I was at the museum, the Cleveland art, the Cleveland museum of art. And I walk in feeling great. (laughs) And then all of a sudden I'm weeping because I am thinking about me and my mother being there. And I really took that moment. I was like, damn it. I one did not feel like crying as we all say in the midst of those moments, but two, Ooh, how cool to think about this as a new practice with my mother. Now, what I, what I ended up doing, what I ended up doing improvisationally in that moment is every time I saw a work of art that I knew my mom would like, or that I would have wanted to show her, I I would whisper her name out loud as a, as an invitation for her to join me there. I would be like, mom, mom. And I would still say, mom, look in the way that I said it when I was five in the way that I say it, you know, I said it when I was 20, I would whisper, mom, look. And that was a practice that turned into a practice. So now as I walk through museums, when I feel like I want to, I have a, I have a grief practice and grief isn't happening to me. I am in relationship with grief. And sometimes it is just absolutely knocking me over and I'm underneath my covers weeping for days, trying to convince myself to take a shower. Sometimes that's what my relationship to grief looks like. And sometimes alternatively, it looks like intense getting into the shower to cry for an hour straight so I could get those, so I could move that energy through me, those emotions. Um, And then, you know, indulging in really wonderful oils to moisturize my body as a reminder that this is the body my mother made and I will continue to love it in the midst of me living and continuing on. 
So grief as a practice is a reminder to me that grief is a relationship I want to continue to cultivate in new creative ways all throughout my life. And while I cannot fathom, I cannot fathom going on without my mother, like what? Well, I cannot fathom it. I am so excited to build my grief practice in creative, interesting ways throughout my life. And both of those can, are true. The both end of that sits very, very strongly in my body. Thanks, Rachel. Um, <laughs> well, I could probably just talk to you for hours. I just feel like that was like where to stop. I want to check in with you though and just see if there's like questions or something else you like, well, you did talk about this and I kind of want to whatever. I don't know if, if there's more to add, I, I do want to give you a chance, but I want to, I'm, I'm having that feeling of, uh, well, gratitude and, and also like, um, possibility, uh, that feels fresh and new for me and my own grief. And also just like, I often would describe it as like this moment of, of wanting to have like 12 more hours with you and feeling the like complete <laughs> enoughness of like right here, you know, mm -hmm. like totally enough. I am laughing so much at you as someone who, there's no way, there's no way you're crying and you work with grief so much. Like there has to be a point where you like, just don't anymore, but you have not reached it. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm like, will I, will I, will I stop crying? <laughs> I, and also there's uh, this version it. of like part of how, part of it is part of how I facilitate. Yeah. And it's like that, like, you know, I feel like you're, this is what I do want to say about your crying when you walked in the museum. I feel this about like the open mic. Um, yeah. It's called you're going to die poetry, poetry bros and everything goes. Cool. And that's like the event we've done for you. 10 plus years, yeah. but what I'll say at the event, right. Is like, when I tell you like Rachel, you, you know, we share a moment where our dead come in to our conversation. Mm -hmm. When someone names their dead at like the open mic, the line of, of dead arrive. Mm -hmm. And I'll mm -hmm. say like, there mm -hmm. are no empty seats here, you know? Mm -hmm. And, yeah. and, and I say like these people, these, these dead, they're so glad you're making time for them. Yeah. And, and what I yes. hear you say to me, like how it reads when I, I imagine you walk into the museum and crying is like the first time I could say like, your mom is also kind of like pulling mm -hmm. on you just going like, Hey, mm -hmm. you know, like, yes. can I grieve too? I, you know, and I'm yes. not talking about like a spiritual belief. I have, that's not grounded in anything. Yeah. 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 yeah it's just yeah. like uh, with you, what you just said, I had this moment of like, Oh, you know, that's that too. You know? Yes. And I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope that 
My mom gets to live out some things through me <laughs> She is. in a way that, you know, I used to have so much resentment for my mom when she was alive because my success, sometimes she would be like, oh, take me to Paris now. Take me to blah, blah, blah. Like you have this. So do this for me. And I'd be like, um, no, you got to live your life. It's my turn. Like <laughs> I kind of had that response, like what are you talking like what responsibility do I have to now give you the life that you maybe didn't even have the courage to give yourself like I would really be critical with her oh, about yeah, that like sure, what sure, are sure, you sure. like what are you asking me mm. and now I'm so happy I would love to take her to Paris right now because she'll be there like in in this in this way in this in this space like it like when I talked about those barriers like the barrier of resentment I might have because of whatever reason my mom wanted to do something and I did it out of guilt or she guilted, you know, mm. she guilt tripped me into doing something. Congrats, mom. You don't even have to guilt trip me anymore. Yeah, you want to go to Paris? I will get on a plane and I will happily that. share that <laughs> yeah, time yeah, and space yeah. with yeah. you That's in a way so that good. when yes. it had been possible, when you were in a wheelchair and I would feel the anxiety about how we were going to find a cab and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like the, there really is mm. such sweet possibility in how we get to be in relationship with the, with the dead after and even oh my, my sister gosh. and her her addiction taking up so much space between us in her in our relationship you know she used to listen, she was 12 years older than me so she was like so cool to me in my head um and i would go to her house in the mornings she we all lived in like section eight housing and my sister, when she got old enough to get her own place, just lived in another apartment nearby. And I would run over to her house in the morning so she could put my hair in a ponytail. Cause I thought she did a ponytail better than everyone else. Yeah. And she would play Lauren Hill and Lauren Hill. I, I'm just like a little black girl in Ohio living in a fairly white neighborhood. And I, couldn't even appreciate Lauren Hill the way that I probably should have when I was younger, but Michelle appreciated her. Like mm. she really listened to her and she loved her. Mm. And now that I'm an adult, I'm like, damn, I wish Michelle could have got to Brooklyn and really met her people. She could have seen that how she was, was actually celebrated in many ways. And so now listening to Lauren Hill is my grief practice with yeah. my sister. Like mm -hmm. I listen to her and I listen to those lyrics and I fantasize on behalf of my sister about what her life could have looked like if she would have been cared for in the way that she needed to be cared for. Mm -hmm. That wouldn't have led her to addiction. That wouldn't have led her to this early death. You know, mm -hmm. it, grief, grief is just such a potent nutrient filled space that I don't ever want to leave. Mm. I, I wish I wish it would have taken me longer to get here, but I never want to leave. Wait, you, yeah, right. You, yeah, you, <laughs> yeah. That's a good sentence. Yeah, I wish I didn't. It didn't happen so soon, or I wish. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's we all know like, it's going to happen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I wish it could have. I wish it. I wish it could have happened later oh, or at a different time, or yeah. there could have been way less time. But I know you're I also, right, and it is that version of like I don't I. I have my mom back for anything. And there's a kind of life I'm having that is not possible, but for having lost her. Yes. Yep. And, and yeah. so it's like, and it's that, that can be both it's the both end. Yeah. Yes. And that can feel like that could be exciting. That could be like a mind fuck. Like what the hell that could mm -hmm. be intimidating. You know, you're right. One of the hardest things for me and for many people. And I, you know, I have more, hopefully from what we know, from what I can assume, I have more life ahead of me than behind me. That means I have more life without my mom than with her. Mm -hmm. I got to do something with that. Like, what That's, am I going to oh, do? Yeah. Just like sit with it and be like, Oh, okay. Well, right. I guess 
those were a nice 33 years. Let's hope the next 33, you know, like, no, I want, I'm, I'm going to be version. in relationship with her. I'm going to, yeah. yes, it's like, there's like, this is going to have to move into my life in a major way. And so, um, instead of shying away from it, I'm just like showing up to it. Sometimes in big boisterous way. Sometimes I'm like peeking around the corner, like, wait, do I even have the capacity to look grief in the eye right now? And that's okay. There's no, there's no, there's no uh, report card or receipt at the end of grief. Do what you need to do to be well, and what you do is enough. Thank you so much to Rachel Cargill for saying yes to being on the show. What an honor to have you here, Rachel. Lots of things to get to in the show notes. Let me see if I can rattle some of those off. Rachel hosts a monthly grief and remembrance storytelling event, all of which is advertised through Instagram. You can go to at rachel.cargill, C-A-R-G-L-E. Rachel hosts additional programming for anti-racism education and the child-free community. This includes Waves, the grief group. Those are all available through her Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the great unlearn. Again, link in the show notes. Rachel is hosting a retreat at the Art of Living Center in Boone, North Carolina, April 5th through the 7th, where she will be hosting a retreat on living your truest life. Link for that in the show notes. Rachel's book, A Renaissance of Our Own, A Memoir and Manifesto on Reimagining, came out last May, 2023, and the paperback is going to be available this March, so get it. Rachel also owns a small bookshop in Akron, Ohio, where she is from, called Elizabeth's Bookshop and Writing Center, and you can support this black, queer-owned shop through bookshop.org, shop forward slash Elizabeth's, anyway, link in the show notes. I think that's it. There's no, no, Nick's not here. I just wanted to get you those links. I wanted to say thank you to Rachel. I want to say thank you to all of you for listening. Remember, if you're listening to this, two things are true. One, you're going to die. Two, you are not dead yet. The rest is up to you. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.